Hi guys and welcome to episode 34 of the Road CC podcast in association with Lacquer. Now this podcast, uh, we recorded a lot of it before we heard the news of, in fact we recorded all of it before we heard the news about the Queen. Um, we were thinking about potentially maybe replacing some stuff in here with you know, stories around you know, the Queen and cycling but didn't really seem right. I felt a little bit shoehorned. I mean, we have covered some things on the site. I'm sure you've seen. Um, there've generally kind of been things around, um, you know, what the preparations for, you know, the national morning um, and all that kind of stuff has has caused for cycling. So closures of, you know, shutting of events, the tour of Britain ending early, um, and some of the more bizarre stuff like the town hall in Norwich which decided that they would close some bike racks during the morning period Uh, but in the end we kind of decided that we would go ahead with what we had planned um, which is really interesting so the first part of the podcast is myself Pat Jamie and Liam talking about everything to do with winter riding so how to prepare your bike what we think about the best kind of clothes to wear, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, it's really interesting because basically everybody in it has a lot of experience and we all have some pretty unique advice, including Jamie's specific kind of lube, if you uh, want to listen to that. Um, and then the second part, we were really lucky to be joined by Josh Portner, who's the CEO at Silka. So Dave managed to sit down with him and they talked about everything to do with you know the kind of high-end manufacturing that Silk could do some of the new technologies they're doing um we've split that into two parts so today is part one and in the next episode we'll obviously cover part two um but yeah i hope you guys enjoy this episode and um yeah speak to you at the end So we know that we're coming into winter. I had the wettest ride I think I've had in about six months yesterday morning. It was horrible. Um, But it's something that we're going to have to get used to now because the weather is getting more rubbish. People are looking longingly at their trainers again. Um, Their indoor trainers, not their literal trainers. Um, So I thought it would be really useful for us to discuss what people need to do to prepare for riding in winter and kind of you know what you can do to essentially make what could be quite a miserable experience into something that's I wouldn't say as fun as riding you know in bright sunshine but something that is still fun you know not the unbearable you know soaking wet bum that a lot of people tend to experience so i mean i guess one of the first things that we need to look at is how we prepare our bikes. So, I mean, Liam, do you want to start us off? What What do you reckon is kind of a key? Well, first off, if we're talking about bikes for winter, I think there's one thing that we all absolutely need on our bikes in the winter in some form. And that for me is mud guards. Um, personally, I run um, full fenders, full mud guards. Uh, depends which side of the pond you're on, um, which word you use. But 
full mud guards, I believe, are courteous to other riders uh, that might be on your group ride. Um, and then even if you're riding alone, it reduces your bike cleaning a little bit. Um, and OK, so if it's chucking it down from the sky, you're still going to get wet. But if there are wet roads, it's just going to stop you from getting soaked through within minutes. Um, you might, you know, you might still get a little bit wet, but it's not going to be as bad as it would be without mud guards. So for me, mud guards are an absolute must. Um, and personally, I quite like proper metal ones as heavy as possible. Um, bolt them down. They're never going to move. Love them. Yeah, I'm a big mudguard fan as well. But for me, I've found a bit of a challenge recently with the um, with the drop stays because how, they still provide all mudguards as if all that there's no such thing as drop stays. So it just means that you, I'm constantly having to find that perfect balance between it either scraping against your wheel or you've got so much sticking out that it effectively just you know, there's a chance that it's just going to completely destroy your uh, derailleur or just run into your spokes. So, yeah, I found that a bit of a challenge, but I'm still a big fan. And all it takes is a little bit of angle grinding and a couple of hours of rage, and then you're normally fine. Oh, absolutely. I'm totally with Liam. Mudguards, full-length mudguards, mudguard extenders as well. The extra flaps you can buy either from... Yeah. I, there's yes. long as that front mud guard you can get a good bit of flashes and bottom bracket is going to be um yeah i mean i i pretty much ride a gravel bike and have done for gears or a cross bike back when they were called those things and mud guards are essential um and it's not just i don't mean off-road i mean everywhere and i tend to use i have tried bolt-on ones and i prefer the clip-on version um sks to name a brand makes some fantastic options and it, i'm running 40 to 50 tires and they still cover that variation they still cover that and i just think everything you said liam i agree with um it keeps you clean and it helps keep the bike clean um and you know i think they look pretty good especially with the ones that stick out the front yeah it's a, it's a handy thing yeah i mean with clip-ons has there been an, a really effective yeah. clip-on for discs yet because i yeah. used to, yeah i used to run them with um when i was on, when i was just on you know regular rim calipers i but, would yeah, say that when i bought mine on your there, frame didn't seem to be any mount design good. as much as it does the clip-on area because the ones i've using and have been using now for three years have a um rubber band strap that goes round an area and I haven't failed to mount that yet on the two bicycles or the three now, the two that I'm currently using that I've been, you know, there's no issue. But as long as you've got a clean rear seat stay, I guess, is the issue. And where the where the disc mount is mounted, it shouldn't affect that. No problem. The front one, you've got two options on the front. You might have to get clever with bending yeah. it to be above the mount or it might actually fit below with a bolt. It, if you've got my recent carbon forks, have both got mounts for below. So, and I think, you know, some of the, some of the posher brands are quite keen to keep their bikes clean in the winter. I yeah. mean, the Open offer you a special through axle Carbotech skewer conversion that mounts the mudguard to the fork in that way so that it's really sleek and works and it's guaranteed to work rather than making a bodge. So, 
Yeah, I think mud guards have become okay on bikes again. Actually, I don't think that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, that's something else that we generally tend to have to force onto our bikes. It you know, as the winters start to draw in, a light. So I'm, I've been using, I've been reviewing a set of lights. So you know, a bit of a peek behind the scenes. We normally tend to review something for about a month, but for some reason, I was given a set of lights two months ago. <laughs> Uh, which was not particularly useful because how can I review lights when in order to cycle in the dark, I'd have to either get up at 4am or you know, make sure that I'm riding after about 10.30. But yeah, in terms of lights, I mean, Jamie, what do you really tend to look for when you're looking at lights? I mean, it's a bit of a cheat coming to you because uh, yeah, you're, you're a home bod when it comes to winter riding, but what would you generally tend to look for? No, I, I definitely rate a set of lights even when I am brave enough to go outside, um, lights are the number one thing that you want on. Like if I go out during the winter, I have a light on a pulse mode or a flash mode. Even if it's bright when you set out, it's worth having on. And another thing that I think it's quite good that manufacturers are now including is daytime running lights, so a bright flashing mode, because it's sometimes during the brightest times that you are least seen by cars so i think that's an important thing to look for i really rate some daytime running modes and also the other thing i always look for is an ipx rating so how waterproof the light is because we've had so many lights that pack up after a few wet rides no 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 no. you've had so many (laughs) lights that pack up after a few wet rides because you don't run mud guards that's why we didn't go to jamie on the subject of mud guards (laughs) The, the biggest mudguard his bike has ever seen is an ass saver. And when that fell I'll off... Do <laughs> yeah. uh, I also sit right on the nose of the saddle, so that makes <laughs> the rest of the saddle a bit of a mudguard. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not much of a mudguard. It's basically That's like great. the Mankini version of a mudguard. <laughs> bringing, this, bringing this straight back to lights after that uh, <laughs> yeah. mental image. Um personally i'd also suggest that with a day flash mode if you've got one they generally give massive run times so if you're commuting in daylight hours you can have one charge for your lights for the whole week and not have to worry about it if it's on daytime uh, flash mode um but yeah on dull foggy days as well in the winter it's just such a, a no-brainer yeah, I mean that's generally how I've been reviewing these um these ones which are quite difficult to review in the sunlight um because it, I am starting to being be able to use them slightly more in dusk now but even then yeah it's all about kind of daytime running and it's not and I I personally think it's not just a case of battery saving but it's also a case of visibility because if you see a flashing light I always find that that's much more yeah. I pay more attention to that than just a solid light because you know a yeah. solid light could just be anything whilst a flashing light is something that draws the attention absolutely i quite like the pulse mode i, I think that that's sort of sometimes a bit yeah. politer than there are a, a number of lights out out flash but flash still gets so, you seen plus it's annoying you know you've got to be careful yeah. what the flash is you know, the, you, you, to blind car drivers isn't an ideal thing but pulse is good combination of pulse mm. i actually run two rear lights on different settings for that reason um front don't tend to run two that would be a bit serious but one light sometimes a helmet light as well in the winter 
especially if I'm virtuing on bridleways on the way home, helmet light becomes essential for that, trying to get that distance and depth perception off-road. So, yeah, that's the only thing I'd add to that is a helmet light for off-road at the front. And then if you're riding at speed on unlit roads, obviously, in you know the dark, you are going to want something very big. And um, I've had some really good results with uh, kind of external battery pack lights. They are generally stronger if you've got a, a specific headlamp. Um, so, yeah, don't necessarily my advice would be don't necessarily pay too much attention to lumen count when you're talking about um, an external battery pack light um, the one i had from uh, light and motion the imgin 800 800 lumens just as powerful as a 1600 uh, lumen all-in-one light yeah yeah and a lot of it comes down to beam shape as well i found so yeah, I mean, I'm sure that we've got the, I don't know exactly when it's going to be done, but I know that we've got the beam comparison test coming up in, yeah, it's well, normally in, in the next few weeks. Time, isn't it? So, favourite time of year. Change to it's then lovely. First week to... of October, that kind of time around there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so we'll be getting out the dummy with the high-vis on it again. Yeah. Gotta love it. Um, so... Uh, and I found this particularly yesterday um, because it was the it was the wettest ride of the year that I've had so far, and I still have my summer lube on my chain. And by the time I got back, it was basically rusted. So, I mean, what do you guys do in terms of you know grease and lube for winter compared to what you do in the summer? Oh, the thickest most waterproof paste you can find throw it at any bearings fish uh, specifically the lower headset bearing upper headset bearing bottom bracket bearings if you've got specific winter wheels throw them in those bearings too like it's it will not slow you down significantly it just won't but you'll you know you'll get out the other side with a bike that's still not squeaking and i know jamie has um a special a pot of special lube yeah, that he uses. Jamie, please. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, well, I normally wax my chains now for winter. Um, and a lot of people would think that waxing chains is only for speed and it will save you a few watts in a time trial. Um, but I really like waxing a chain because it means that you can almost forget about it for 300 miles. 300k maybe maybe 300 miles was a bit ambitious but yeah because i get out quite late and then <laughs> i don't have time to be lubing my chain and checking there's air in my tires so i like it waxed i like it ready and then a quick rag down after the ride and it's ready for the next one what i was hoping I was that you'd say... tell the people about is your special tub of boat building grease oh yeah sorry i forgot about that that you kind of yeah, so you, Jamie helped me to build my winter bike. Uh, what was it, two three years ago? And mm -hmm. a pot of this just got thrown at my lovely Kinesis, and it has been brilliant, silent for my thousands of miles. I think that's just yeah. a, it's thicker than most 
grease, bike-specific greases you'd find. Um, so it's probably slowing Liam down a little bit, but his wheels are still turning. So I think a lot of <laughs> I mean, let's riders, be honest, you couldn't really tell anyway. A lot of riders <laughs> I know in Scotland. Is, honestly, I, I I don't mind going slow in the winter. That's that's the best thing about winter: going slow. Yeah, it's true, and it's it's it's. I guess it's one of my favourite things as well, especially riding in London, where there's you. It's impossible for me to get out to the lanes without having to encounter normally in the summer hundreds and hundreds of cyclists, but in the winter, yeah, it's only the really hardcore that go out. So you actually get to have the kind of the roads to yourself, which is absolutely beautiful. Which also means you can go as slow as possible without people judging you. Which for me, <laughs> again, massive bonus. Um, so. I mean, Jamie, one thing you mentioned there was that you don't like to check, well, or that you don't have time to check the air in your tyres. So we've obviously moved to, you know, as we've kind of got more disc brake bikes around, you know, there's not really many new bikes that are being sold now without disc brakes, but it's allowed us to have these larger tyres. Now, I already run 28s on mine kind of year round. Do you guys generally tend to size up? during the winter well i i also use 28s on my race bike and summer bike um i've just bought a set of 30 mils for for my winter bike so yes is the answer to that question and also i know liam will disagree but i rate tubeless <laughs> for winter riding and fatter tires i agree in 25s maybe even 28s it's a little bit the pressure can sometimes just be too much for tubeless sealant although it is getting better but yeah. in 30s and above I think tubeless is the way forwards. If it saves me just once during the winter, yeah, I'm having to put a tube in the tire, then on it's that front. It and uh, actually, on the tire size yep. thing, um, this may come as a shock, but I actually size down because I'm running 57 and 50s in the summer for off road. But when I'm when I'm going to turn that bike around and do a lot more commuting in the winter rather than off road because it's horrific. I'm going to go down to a 40, 42, 45, but also means I can fit an easier guard. So actually, I'm dropping off the big knobbly tyre um, down to a tyre that's more practical for road use, but absolutely tubeless every time. And it's a long time since I've had a winter puncher. Now I've said it, I'm done. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to fully disagree with my colleagues here because personally... The thing that I, I don't like about tubeless is that if you puncture, it can be, and if you slash a tire or have a puncture that the sealant won't plug, it's a nightmare to get that tire off. Um, so personally, I will go with what I can trust. Um, I actually run pretty much a summer tire, the Vittoria Corsa uh, G2.0 control model. Um, 30 millimeters, so slightly wider than the 28s I run in the summer. Um, but they're clinchers because I know that, okay, so I might pick up a puncture once per winter, um, but I can change that within five minutes at the side of the road, no problem. And even if I've got frozen hands, like I've gone out and forgotten my gloves or something, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Yeah, for me gonna have to go with the tubeless crew unfortunately sorry Liam you're outvoted yeah <laughs> that being said though I did actually have my first proper tubeless puncture last week after 18, 18 months 
no tubeless punctures. And that one was a proper slash, proper, you know, having to, well, I've had to order a, a specialist tubeless patching kit because the regular tubeless patching kit I have at the moment isn't big enough. So that's, yeah. that's kind of indicative. And that's not really going to happen that often. Um, yeah, it was almost like a, you know, almost like somebody shot my tube or something. It was insane. Um, but I mean, I guess, but Liam, you did mention that you have a separate winter bike. Mm. Pat, it sounds like you essentially convert your bike into a winter bike. Jamie, how about you? Is that something that you would generally tend to do? Yeah, different bike. Yeah. Different bike. Interesting. I, I just, I like running the expensive, like, so a bit of dual race and stuff like that on the summer bike and you'll just wear through your brake rotors and your well everything chain rings and chain so much quicker that rather than swap everything out i find it easier to run a run a winter bike with either 105 or ultegra if you really fancy and uh interesting yeah just stop wearing out those expensive bits quite so quick yeah, I mean, for me, normally my winter bike is just my older bike. So, yeah, that's generally how I tend to go. Although I have considered, so I am actually getting, and I've been saying this for months, but I am actually going to get a gravel bike, which I think will become a year rounder because with the with the kind of, well, because you can fit larger tyres because it's a bit more all action I don't know if I will need to get another bike. Well, that being said, as soon as I get it, I'm going to be thinking that I need another one because that's just the (laughs) nature of being a cyclist. But it's an interesting one. Um, And I guess it kind of, I mean, what what do you guys generally tend to think of when you think of a winter bike? Like, what do you think makes a good one? I think it's still got to be, if you're, you know, a road racer, then I think the bike still has to be, at least in its geometry, road racer setup. Um, so for me, my Kinesis Four Seasons disc, it's got a tiny, tiny head tube, long old horizontal top tube. Love it. The position on it is beautiful. Um, and then it's got to have space for guards around wide tires. Um and thankfully, mine also has mounts for a rack, I, I, um, and I might be putting yeah, a I was going to mention that, Liam, well, and that's something that I think you need to include here. That there's a couple of rack, op- rack options out there from two brands that are quick release. So your bike can still say good-looking at the weekend if you want to use it for the off-road or whatever ride you're doing mm. then. But you can pop on a rack literally in le- under a minute on either of the two systems, Tailfin or Ortley, you can choose your budget and they both work really well. And I think that's the other thing. A winter bike to me is mud guarded, it's got lights and it has a rack so you don't have to carry a heavy pack on your back. If you do want to pick up something extra in the shops, you can still get home or you need extra jackets or extra warmth, you can carry that. If you haven't got a rack, you can't have all that extra stuff. With winter, getting caught out in the winter is unpleasant. I mean, forgetting your gloves is one thing, but having a double slash puncher and then needing to wait for assistance is something that you don't want to have to happen. So proper carrying proper tools as well. Not big tools, but having that kit that you didn't have, George, in your bag 
is something that you need to think about for winter. Who wants to get stuck outside for a long time? I'm going to add to Pat's point there and say that the rack for me is going to stay on the bike. And I might even go out on the club runs with the panniers attached. Because in the winter, there is no better feeling than having no care in the world about whether you get dropped. And if you go out with a rack and panniers, no one's going to care if you're getting dropped. They're going to go, of course you're getting dropped. Look at how much weight he's carrying. And if you go off the front, like you're feeling a bit spicy that day, oh, the kudos you're going to get. People will be buying you cake. They'll be queuing up to do it. Yeah. Little does everyone know that Liam's panniers are full of helium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think we're going to have to address it at some point. But is inside better? No, you get fresh air outside, but Jamie will argue this point to the death. I, I never used to like riding indoors and Zwift has changed that for me and I am now a fair weather cyclist I, I've got to say it <laughs> I, I like the racing and where I live I like riding with other people but often the group rides get cancelled because they're fair, fair weather cyclists as well and I can just jump on Zwift at the weekend with five other people that I know wherever they are in the country and we can have a good workout and I'm not going to fall off on some icy lane, which I think everyone thinks is a positive. Mm. It is good to be able to get that solid session done. And especially if you, right. So if you're doing zone two training on a Sunday, because you know, your coach has set it or you've read that that's good. If you look at a four hour ride outside in you know the winter, even in the summer, and you look at actually how much time you spend in zone two, you can get that four hour ride or the contents of it done in under two, probably. Um, so, you know, in, indoor training is ridiculously efficient if you do want to go down that road. Um, I like to I like to kind of give it a bit of stick. But, you know, if you've got the space to have a setup and the money to, you know, buy that setup, it's it is good. Yeah, it's true. Um, but I guess when, I mean, from my perspective, I've, I've done I've done a bit of indoor training. I just can't, I just, I don't know my cycle. I think that if you're cycling for kind of fitness and performance, it makes a lot of sense. But a lot of the cycling I do, I mean, which is what I used to be cycling a lot for, but now my cycling is as much about the kind of escapism as it is about the sport itself. So I feel that, even though, even though I don't, you know, I enjoy using, you know, things like Zwift and I enjoy kind of the camaraderie of it, I still feel that I've missed out on like 50% of why I go riding if I just do a session on Zwift. That's the challenge for me. And that might just be a mindset thing that I need to get over. Um, but I mean, I guess, so we've spoken a lot about the bikes that we tried that we use how we set them up but just as importantly and as Liam and Pat have both said is what you're wearing so what do you guys tend what is your go-to what is your go-to winter gear that you that you absolutely must wear before you head out on a freezing cold day 
a thermal base layer that you've just taken off the radiator from the night before if you are getting up on a sunday morning where it is raining sideways and two degrees i cannot tell you the joy that is going to give you until you put all of your other kit on and then remember that you've forgotten to put your heart rate monitor on so you've got to take it all off anyway that's beside the point um my two product recommendations would be a pair of spats um overshoes they're the ones that go up to your knees okay they might look ridiculous holy hell if you struggle with cold feet they are insanely good um and then oh i was going to recommend one jacket i'll recommend two castelli's perfetto or a similar thing um they really are good they get you through the majority of the winter um, especially in the uk where it's not that cold most of the time um very good for layering very good for breathability gauze shake dry jacket as well if you can get any kind of different brand doesn't matter as long as the materials there water just washes off they are quite pricey though like 275 95 quid uh, merino sure. socks merino socks um huh. definitely same reason on the Can't radiator uh the best and most Fresh. comfortable gloves you can find and it varies for me depending what type of winter riding it is but i mean you've got two big holes where your hands go in so the water is going to be a problem at all times so warm warm merino stuff i wear a lot of uh merino base layer stuff as well but it, i don't mind smelling like a wet sheep um but in terms of the more performance oriented stuff i've got uh i think it's a, a dhb winter lab series jacket um, which is a soft shell, which is extremely water repellent. I wouldn't say it's waterproof, but that I can get away with a base there or a thin top underneath. Um, nice tight fitting collar, long arms, long back. It's, you know, that's that kind of thing that you've just got to get it done. Um, so that's pretty good. I haven't found a full waterproof that I really rate, and I've had a lot. They're still, I still seem to breathe too much underneath them. So I'm still struggling with that one. I know Shake Dry exists, but same problem for me um and if you can find a pair of uh, spats i haven't tried but i have got a number of um crazily claimed waterproof winter boots that do a pretty good job um north wave 45 north those kind of things i think but you just got a warm socks warm gloves uh, and a buff a buff stop the air going on yeah yep the best, the best tenner you can spend, isn't it? That those buffs. Yeah, that's my recommendation. Cover your ears and your head. If you've got cold feet, cover your head. <laughs> and then the other thing, is, oh, I thought we were waiting for gloves. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear the science behind that, mate. No, it, it's the best way of keeping your core temperature up is not losing temperature through your head. So I've got a Castelli. Um, I don't know what it's called. It covers your ears as well. It does the same job and like is a wind stopper thing as well. Um, so I think that's good. Um, always wear your aero helmet because then you've got less ventilation. Um, I know cask, like they make their wasabi helmet, which is specifically for winter, but I haven't personally used one of them. Um, but the less fence, the better really to stop the cold air getting in. Um, and then, when you do get too hot, inevitably, when you go up a climb and you start sweating, your buff or hat is just so easy to store, so much easier than a jacket or an extra gilet layer or anything like that. 
Um, and then the other thing is winter gloves. I really struggle with cold hands and I must admit, I still haven't found the perfect pair because I really like keeping the, I don't like the really thick ones because you just don't get the same feel for the bars or especially with like lobster fingers where you, or mitts. Um, yeah. Do, do you guys have any glove recommendations? The Castelli, I want to say Infinium, but it's been, however, it's been like nine months since I've even seen them. So um, my last Castelli review on the site, um, I know this is going up as a video. I'll put the link in the description and the podcast. I guess, George, you can do the same thing. Yeah, but for some reason, I went through a bit of a... Uh... I went through a bit of a stage of being like the glove guy when it came to reviews. So I've, I've actually looked at quite a few over the last couple of years and Bontrager have done a couple of really good ones um, that I've tried out, which I can't remember the names of them because I haven't looked at them in ages. But yeah, I picked them up the other day because you know we're moving house and I was just packing a load of stuff into some boxes. And I just remembered that they are, yeah, they give you that, they give you enough feel while still being warm enough, but they don't make you look like the Michelin man. Those are really great. Um, and the other thing that I would always recommend, 100%, because regardless of how, and I've got a set of the Spats Roadmen, which is the ones that go all the way up to your knees. They are amazing, but your feet are still going to get wet regardless. So the one thing I always recommend is waterproof socks. Those are an absolute game changer. It means that you're not suddenly... Uh, it doesn't matter when you suddenly get that kind of creeping feeling of water coming in from the bottom. It doesn't matter. You can stop that with a bit of duct tape yep. over the cleat holes from the inside from the inside of the shoe, under your insole, duct tape on wherever the vents are. Um, although shout. this does help if you have a dedicated, like if you've got an old pair of shoes that you use in the winter, just, just do them. Because otherwise, it's gonna you can just ruin your shoes for summer. summer. That's gonna be very sweaty. I do always tape up the vents on the bottom of my shoes with a bit of insulation tape. Stick that over the the vents in the carbon this, soles or plastic soles. And uh, this is a good question, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. It sounds like you guys are using not summer, but maybe not full winter shoes. I don't have water ingress through the soles of my shoes or through the vents because I don't have any in my winter shoes. So. I don't get wet. I only get wet socks, George, from water going down my shins. You know, depending on whether I'm wearing knee warmers or if I'm wearing an over, if I'm wearing over trousers, it's different. But I don't get a wet foot from upwards, not from road splash or anything else. So I think that is about whether you're wearing a full winter boot or not, or a winter shoe or winter waterproof socks. To me, once you get water in the top of them, then you've got cold feet. So that's why I always do merino. Collective Bicycle Cover by Lacquer exists to rewrite the rules of insurance so it's something people stand with, not against. Lacquer has been voted best cycling insurance provider for the last four years running. No excess, no depreciation, no contract, no funky fine print, and a five-star rated customer service. An experience so good you might actually want to claim. So, whether it's a pothole that's buckled your wheel, some knob that nicked your bike, or an airline who's lost your gear, you can be sure Lacquer has got your back. New customers can get 30 days free bicycle insurance using the code ROADCCPOD30. So, Josh, thanks ever so much for joining us. Um, it must be 
almost 10 years now since you took over at the helm of Silker. Is that about right? Oh, yeah, it'll be uh, December. I think our official date was December 10th of 2013. So, oh, so you've yeah, got another uh, year to go. Another year for 10. Yeah. But yeah, it's coming up. It's It's been crazy fast. <laughs> Yeah, and at, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And at that point, we took the company over. It already had like a what a ninety-something year history. It, it did. Yeah. It was uh, uh, twenty seventeen was the hundredth year anniversary. So yeah, we were just we had we had four years to prepare for the hundredth <laughs> after we or three years to prepare for the hundredth. I guess uh, once once we, we took it. And uh, how did it feel taking over a company with that much kind of background? That that kind of huge history was it was it a frightening thing to like take it move it somewhere different and kind of uh, not start yeah. again exactly but you know just start with a new kind of leaf yeah well and it, I, I, honestly i think what made it very freeing was that you know the the company was, had fallen into um like a receivership like a, a sort of a bankruptcy in italy and the only thing we could we could get from that was the trademark. And so, you know, we had the history and the brand recognition, but at the same time, it was kind of liberating that like, okay, we didn't, um, there was nothing else there to even buy. I mean, we, you know, we wanted to take, he had this great old lathe and, and some of like the historical documents and posters. And like, we, those things weren't even an option for us. You know, it was like, you, you can't even have the posters off the wall. Like the government owns those. Um, and and so in a way, you know, I think it, it that first day I remember sitting down in my living room at this this table and I had this like laptop that I bought and this piece of paper with the trademark on it and was like, oh, okay, we're we are starting from nothing other than the vision that like we want to do right by this amazing old brand. And obviously you'd come from a position where you were you were a user of silk products as well for, for a long time. So was there oh, yeah. certain things, certain things that you saw in the brand that you, that had really kind of resonated with you as a, as a cyclist and as a, as a kind of mechanical technician? Yeah. You know, I, I think when, when I first heard from Claudio, who was the, the owner at the time, uh, he had pancreatic cancer. He was dying. Uh, he'd just been given a few months to live. The company was in trouble and he had actively been trying to sell it for about a year and nobody wanted it. Um, and I remember hearing his story and, you know, kind of, thinking at the time, like, oh man, you know, like who wants to buy a bankrupt pump company in Italy of all places? Like, you know, you'd have to be nuts. And, uh, and then the more I thought about it really was my own experience of, you know, um, I got my Soka pump when I was, you know, 15 working in a bike shop. And I, I tell the story all the time. I love it. But uh, Dan K. Spear, a great, you know, former pro cyclist here in the U.S. and just a lovely guy owned the shop. And, I remember him telling 15 year old me, you know, the, the Silka pump was like $80 at the time, which, you know, like 1992. And, uh, he'd be like, Oh man, it's so expensive for a pump, you know? And he said, look, kid, there's two kinds of pumps. There's crap and there's Silka. He's <laughs> like, just buy it. You won't regret it. You know? And, and you think back and think, my God, my tenure at zip, you know, the, the pumps in the, the employee, bike room. I mean, my God, we replaced them every like three months. You know, the, uh, I, I had just earlier that year lost something like six hours of wind tunnel time because we had two pumps with us that we, we traveled with and they both broke in the same test. And, you know, they were like the nice shiny silver, new fancy pants pumps, you know, that, uh, 
were were really popular at the time. And you know, like, you know, you go to a bike shop and you're like, oh man, okay, I can get a Silka old school brass Presta chuck and a hose clamp and, you know, we can rig this thing to work again. Um, yeah. And then it, it just started from there. You know, I, I thought really had this moment of like, you know, I'd spent 15 years of my career doing super high tech race stuff. And, you know, we were obsoleting our own technology every year and it was really a fun ride. And, and then, you know, I look at my own bike room and it's like, okay, well, everything I've ever lusted for in this sport is in a landfill somewhere, except for, you know, that campy T wrench and that Silka pump and, you know, my, my vintage, you know, Eddie Merck's steel frame, um, the rest of it had just become disposable. And so it, it, it just felt like something cool. Like let's, let's go make a modern take on not disposable stuff. Um, and, and that, that really helped me, I don't know, pull the trigger on, on buying the the brand and, and, you know, and then too, you, you'd lay in bed at night and think of things like, you know, like, gosh, why, why hasn't anybody just made a valve extender that, you know, like works. <laughs> And, you know, the bar here is low. I mean, I, you remember the, the first year of the company, you know, we, we would get these great emails from people like, oh, I bought your valve extenders. They're amazing. They work. You're like, wow, that that is a low bar. You know, when, when like something actually doing what it's supposed to do warrants a happy email from a customer, it, it sort of tells you the state of things. And and uh, so, you know, I think as we've grown into all these other categories, it's, you know, my vision has always been, can, can we bring new technology? Um to either make it work better or, or in some cases, sadly, I think we're just making it work in the first place for people. <laughs> <laughs> and of the, of the things that you brought to market of the different products and the different areas you're in, what are the products that you're, what are the products that you're most proud of at Silka? I guess in, in some ways, all of them, you know, I, I think if, if I have a, if I have a specialty, um, as an engineer, as a company owner, I think it's kind of being able to look at the world, assuming that, you know, most of these problems, if you break them down to kind of first principles, somebody somewhere has solved all this stuff before in some other industry or for some other purpose. And if we can just be really open-minded and a little bit clever and willing to talk to folks, um, I, I think, you know, we can do some amazing things. And so I, I think of, uh, it, you know, it's not my favorite product, but like, you know, our take on bar tape, right? We, we've done all this work on vibration, like, oh, okay, you, you don't want damping in your bar tape. You want undamped suspension and bar tape. Well, man, Nike just launched that two hour marathon shoe with that super special foam from Arkema Chemical. That's like the, you know, the best rebounding foam ever created. And it's really light. Oh, that'd make a great bar tape. And then we look at it and go, oh gosh, but it's not durable. Oh, well, you know, the Oakley's unobtainium nose piece material, you know, that's like hydrophobic and it's got this great feel. And I wonder if we could laminate those two together. And, and, you know, pretty quickly, it's like you make a couple of phone calls, you talk to some people, you make some terrible prototypes, right? On a table that people look at of like, that's not bar tape. That's awful. You know, and like, no, 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 see the vision here. Like, you know, <laughs> we can make this good. And a year later you launch a product and, and you know, that one for us, like, you know, Tour Magazine did a, uh, in Germany, did a laboratory test and, you know, 22 brands of bar tape, we're the new guy on the market and we win the overall and we win, I think there were five categories and we were first place in like three of those categories. And, you know, for me, that's just super fulfilling because it, it's like, wow, we just by stepping outside of ourselves 
and talking to people who were smarter than us um, in areas that weren't bikes, we did something really cool. And I think we, you know, we made a whole product category a better place. I mean, uh, you know, look at, I think the stuff we did with lubricants, you know, in a way, I think we showed up in lubricants and kind of, you know, kicked the industry in the, in the, in the nuts a little bit, you know, by doing something just totally, totally different. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't invent that. I mean, we, you know, we, I, I knew somebody who was an F1 and we're talking to him about what they were doing and he's, Oh, you should read these research papers. And we did a lot of stuff based on this and, you know, and it, it, then it's just putting in the hard work to try to figure out how to make the best decisions along the way. But, you know, I didn't, um, you know, go get a PhD in chemistry and like, you know, invent a new chemical compound or something. I, I just was open-minded enough to go find people much, much smarter than myself um, and ask them what they would do. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, the Synergetic is a great lube. I've used it for the last um, nine months in in UK conditions, which can be challenging, although at the moment they're not. And um, it's, it's been great. So what, what specifically did you, do you come, did you come looking for a lube or is it just that you got chatting to somebody and that was, that was the direction that went in? So lube for us was interesting. You know, I had been waxing chains for uh, God, 20 years. And, you know, when Adam, uh, Jason Smith had friction facts and he was, you know, testing and, and make kind of coming up with like, oh, what's the fastest hot melt we can make? And, and, and the data, you know, probably late 2000s was clear, like this hot melt really was the future. Um, so, you know, we, I was hot melt waxing chains for, you know, Cancellara and 08 and, and, you know, stuff like that, you know, we'll go to the Olympics and, and play around with, you know, recipes we found on the internet. And, and so I'd kind of been, I guess, preaching that gospel for years and, and really had this vision of, like, oh, if we could put this into a drip form um, for normal people, you know, this would be a killer product. And, and I think the irony of that is, you know, we, I spent so many years trying to figure out how to make a good wax emulsion that would penetrate um, that the technology changed. And, and, you know, we learned about this tungsten disulfide kind of synergistic reaction with this other uh, material um, that, you know, it's kind of like a one plus one equals 10 sort of effect, right? It's like, mm. like, each of these things on their own are 10% better and you put them together and it's like 90% better. I mean, like literally that's how the math works on this one. Uh, and it's just, it's totally unexpected and, you know, it's kind of like magic, right? <laughs> right. Like it doesn't make sense, but we'll let's leverage this. Um, and so the technology changed and we started using that in the hot melt and I still thought nobody's going to buy hot melt. And, uh, and then COVID hit and, you know, we sent our employees home and I remember thinking like, okay, I you know, literally sent them home and said, I, I, think we probably have about 10 weeks of cash to pay everybody. And, you know, I hope I see you guys again, right? I mean, maybe if you, you know, <laughs> it seems a little crazy now, but if you think back to the beginning of this, I mean, it, those were yeah. some scary times. And, oh, they were. Nobody, nobody knew where it was going to go. Yeah, it was. And, and so, you know, I had been, uh, I have a little lab at my house and I, I'd been doing all this work at home. And, and I think it was a day in, I remember, you know, just being like, screw it. I'm going to like, buy some bottles and bottle this stuff and like, let's sell it. You know, what, what do we have to lose? <laughs> and, uh, and so we started selling the, the drip wax literally from my house. And, um, and there was this crazy interest, but I think, you know, even more surprising the, um, at right on top of that initial interest, people <laughs> kind of went, Oh, well, yeah, but in your story, you talked about the original hot melt stuff. 
we actually want to buy that. I'm like, oh crap, I never thought anybody would want to buy that, you know? Um, and, and, so, and so then that became a, you know, and, and of course here we are a couple of years later, I, I was just at the Leadville 100 and, you know, it's funny in, in the world of uh, mountain bikes and people are coming up with like, like, oh, no way you guys make pumps. That's so cool. We thought you just made lube. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, oh, we've, we've discovered this whole new audience that, um, they, they now know us as like the lubricant people, you know, and like, oh, wow. When, when did you guys start making pumps? Oh, you know, about a hundred five years ago. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, I would say if a, a lot of the technology areas we get into seem or can seem crazy, but they're typically all coming out of some, you know, the, the, the core of our company is a company called Aeromind that still does a lot of, um, consulting to you know world tour teams and triathletes and and bike brands and, and component brands um and so you know my background being kind of high technology aerodynamics composites things like that uh we we do a lot of consulting in these spaces and and what that really opens up for us is um and, and it's actually in our agreement that we have with you know with the teams or the companies that you know hey after a, a three-year like a sunsetting period um we can turn ideas that we've come up with here into, into products. Right. And, and so, um, you know, some of the things that we're into now, I think a lot of our, like the 3d printing and stuff like that. I mean, a lot of that is, you know, we're, you know, you see these guys riding these crazy handlebars or, you know, crazy custom components for time trial or whatever, you know, a lot of that is stuff that we're, um, you know, we got into 3d printing to be able to make, to solve problems, uh, you know, for those teams or those athletes. And, in time, that's stuff that'll eventually become available to the public. Um, so I think it's, for me, it's kind of a cool, a cool way of trickle down, you know, like you, you can really see the, uh, the, those trickle down effects of the technology from people and, you know, it's expensive at first and it gets cheaper in time, but mm. hey, you, you have access to it. And that was episode 34 of the Road CC podcast in association with Lacquer. Now, I found that particularly interesting. I think it's a strong start to the season. And we'll have the second part of the interview with Josh Portner uh, coming up in the next episode. So make sure that you look out for that. And also thanks to Pat, Jamie and Liam for all of their insight around winter riding. I hope that you guys got some good tidbits from there. I think that... There were some really interesting little hacks there that I'm personally going to be adopting myself. As always, um, if you guys want to get in touch, you can send us an email to podcast at road.cc or you can find us on social media. Just search for Road CC. So, yeah, first episode of the third season. Um, I really hope that you guys are looking forward to this season as much as I am. We've got some really interesting stuff coming up. And, um, yeah, until next time. Cycle safe. Bye.